This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kiara Rachel. Welcome, welcome to Headstaffs and Good Yarns. I'm really excited to have you on the show. So welcome, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's such an <laughs> honor to be here, honestly. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Rachel is a good friend of mine. So it's really nice to have a friend as well as a powerful Wahine who is doing some epic mahi um on the online space of deconstruct. So I'm so excited. So excited. <laughs> um, I start every episode with this question, so we won't break the tradition. Um, <laughs> when was the last time you had a really good yarn that left you with some food for thought and made you go, whoa? And it doesn't have to be related to what we're talking about today, just just anything. Well, that's a really good question. I feel like I um, have conversations that leave me thinking most days but actually one that's springing to mind right now is a few days ago I was chatting to a friend and we were talking about Elon Musk's Neuralink I don't know if you've heard that much about it no it's whack it's pretty much this like chip that's going to be implanted into people's brains and it's supposedly for medical purposes like that's their whole kind of reason for doing it but I think it's gonna connect to the neurons in your brain and reprogram them um, so that paraplegics can walk again, which is just like such an advanced breakthrough in technology. But it's kind of interesting ethically because the whole thing is controlled by your phone. And then the, the whole kind of premise of releasing it to the public is on medical advancement. But with their technology, there is possibility, I think, to harness it so that you can have like, all of the information from the world's smartest computers in this chip, which means that anyone can technically have all of the information in the world at their fingertips through this app that connects to this chip in your brain. So it brings up a lot of ethical issues. I was talking to this friend about it and they were kind of asking me like, if you on the subject of Neuralink, like if you had the chance to implant Neuralink in your brain and it automatically give you the ability to speak Chinese or Tadeo, which I can't speak either, but they're both things that I really like to be able to do. They were like, would you do it? And that was such an interesting question for me because for me, learning Chinese um, again would be, would be so cool because it was something that was lost in my family when we came over here. Um, But I actually surprisingly came to the conclusion. I think that I'd like to learn it slowly because I feel like that's more, I don't know, mana enhancing um, to be taking it back like slowly rather than just having a chip that gives me all the answers um, as kind of like a reverse like colonization thing, I guess. But I I don't know. I I think I kind of surprised myself with that answer because I've always said like, you know, if I had the opportunity to be able to speak Chinese, I totally would. But yeah, definitely left me with some food for thought. (laughs) My God, that's really mind blowing. I had no idea about this. (laughs) I will send you links after this. It is whack. It sounds equally exciting, but also terrifying. Like, I know. there is so much power. If that 
was used for the wrong intentions, oh, that would be chaotic. And I, I think know, it kind of makes me think of Black Mirror. Yes. But I also want to misspeak, like, if anyone listening is kind of an expert in the Neuralink thing, sorry if I said something wrong. But that was my interpretation of what's been said about it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm definitely going to do more research about it afterwards because that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Also sits on the same answer as you because mm-hmm. um, my my skills in Afsamali aren't the, the best. Um, but I think it's about the process rather than just acquiring the skill. And then oh. also, if you did have all of the information in the world, would it actually be useful if you didn't do anything with it? I think it's more like the application rather than acquiring the knowledge. And not everyone is meant to have the information for everything. We need diversity and skills and talent and knowledge. Um, Wow. Okay. Well, what a mind-boggling way to start the episode. I love it. Um, People want to know more about you, Rachel. So what is your whakapapa? Um, so I am 22 and I am full Chinese, um, culturally and also by blood quantum. So both my parents are full Chinese and I am first generation migrant on my mum's side. I always get this wrong. I think I'm third on my dad's side, but I'm going to need to double check that. Um, and yeah, who do I identify as, um, I don't know I guess I just identify as the relations to my family because they're the most important thing to me so I am my mom Anya's granddaughter and I'm my mom and dad's daughter and Amy and Mel's sister um and an auntie and a cousin so yeah I guess that's how I'd identify myself <laughs> oh that's so special I think um in the time that I've gotten to know you, the way that you talk about your family is just so special oh thank um, you I think <laughs> yeah it is I think family is a hard thing to talk about because people have so many different experiences with it but I love how for you that's how you anchor yourself to this world so thank you for telling us about your whakapapa um one of the things that I was really really excited about having you on the show was just talking about race and all these different aspects of it that come with it because there is so much that you can delve into and it's stuff that you talk about a lot um on your online platform Mm -hmm. and so first of all tell me a little bit more about um deconstruct so how did it come about and what do you hope to do with it yeah sure so um I guess the seeds for deconstruct without me even knowing kind of started when I entered university um because I came from a very conservatively minded school um in high school so I don't think there was a lot of opportunity for me to be exposed to people outside of those that were very similar to me um and so when I came to uni and I actually did health science first year um with the intention of getting into medicine and I didn't make it but I knew that at the end of first year I really really enjoyed epidemiology because it was a um reflection of kind of the greater picture of health out there that really interested me especially because they started to touch quite quite basically, but it was definitely still there on some very present inequities um, that exist for our society. So I kind of took that and ran and I um, entered a public health degree um, and I ended up in the Māori health classroom. And that's kind of where it all started off for me was it just really opened my eyes to the actual experiences of some of our communities and how inequitably they're kind of dispersed, like the hardship across our country is very heavily felt by some communities and not as 
felt by others. And that was something that um, really hit home for me because on reflection with the way that I'd been very privileged to attend a school and be surrounded by um, just people that maybe hadn't experienced as much hardship as was definitely out there. Um, And so, yeah, I guess I really, in that time learning, um, was very grateful and humbled by the fact that I was now given this opportunity to learn all of this. And I had all of this new information about, because we'd workshop quite frequently, things like deconstructing racism, um, looking at the health system from the point of view of equity. Um, And I just was so mind blown that this information was there and that most people out there just like didn't have access to it. And I would put myself in that group up until I stepped into that classroom. And so I think for me, the idea about deconstruct was um, just kind of closing that information gap as such. Like I did kind of, the other thing I did see was what I call woke elitism. And I really started to see that come out around um, Black Lives Matter actually was that there's a lot of people out there that, you know, identifies woke or they think about these kind of concepts quite a lot, which is really cool. But I find that quite often those people don't realize that other people haven't had those opportunities to learn. And there's not a lot of slack given to people that actually would want to learn, but just haven't had any opportunities. And I'm not talking about the people that have had opportunities and just don't take them. Like that's a different story altogether, but there are some people that, and I'd put myself in that category before I was given the opportunity in university, you know, like actually just being able to engage in those spaces and learn and apply those learnings. So the whole point of Deconstruct for me was like just to create an accessible platform where you don't have to be studying it at university, but you can still engage in those conversations and grow in that space in a non-confrontational way, like in a way that's not everyone coming at you being like, why don't you understand this? So yeah, I guess that's where it kind of all came from. Yeah. I really vibe um, with that co-copper. Um, I do want to talk more about deconstruct, but just rewinding a little bit because you've brought up your studies mm-hmm. and I'd love to kind of pick that up and run with that. So sure. you mentioned that you public health and then now this girl's going to be a doctor in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think you've had a really interesting journey because when a lot of people go for med after postgrad it's usually through the anatomy physiology but you've had an epic opportunity um with public health understanding our tongue to whenua better and yeah. in general because you've kind of started to talk about it because of like your your background how do you see tongue to whenua now and um yeah how is your studies impacted how you feel about the race relations state in New Zealand at the moment? That's a really good question. It's a big question, actually. Um, Yeah, I guess, I guess going back to what I said before about coming from a background that wasn't necessarily exposed to any kind of diversity, I would include ethnic diversity when I say that. So when I went to school, I pretty much only saw white people. Like I was definitely in the ethnic minority myself and we didn't have any essentially any slash many Maori or Pacific students. Um, And I think that really changed the way that I saw Maori and Pacific as being invisible almost because they weren't in 
kind of my view on the daily because I went to a school where there wasn't a high ethnic population group. Um, but then when I came to uni, that obviously changed because there's like university is just a far more diverse place. And that's what I love about it is everyone comes from all walks of life and you can go to uni, you know? Um, so yeah, I think it just changed the way that I viewed their place here because I also just didn't have any real idea slash respect for what it meant to be indigenous. And I think that learning what it means to be indigenous, so Māori's tangata whenua, and then what it means to be migrant as well, and comparing those experiences with my experiences being a Chinese migrant with that of tangata whenua or classmates of mine that are of Māori whakapapa or Pacifica descent, um, and kind of drawing those connections, but also reflecting on the differences. And, yeah, I guess as well, reflecting on my role as a migrant being in this country and having the privilege of living here, making sure that I'm contributing to an environment that's supportive of Indigenous because they were here first and this is their land and it's our it's our immense privilege and honour to be able to live here alongside them, um, but also equally my responsibility to not come to this country um, and make it worse off for the people that were here before me. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just, like, nodding my head the whole entire time. Like, <laughs> 100% relate to that. Like, when I first started education system here in New Zealand so like five six starting primary school like we grew up um I went to school that had that was on the lower socioeconomic end and so we had like huge diversity but then as I started putting us in classes according to like um how we scored in tests Mm -hmm. then I stopped seeing that diversity and it's been like years and years and years now that I've started studying again and we're learning about the Treaty of Waitangi and I'm learning about like colonization not in a social sense but in the academic setting I've also experienced those same feelings of oh my goodness like I am even though I'm a migrant person I still you know, I have that obligation and I have that respect now to make sure that the people who were here first, our tangata whenua, um, you know, the system has changed. It's more equal and balanced. I think that's what I really didn't understand before, just how the effects of colonisation have made the system so accessible and easy for the majority, but everyone else, it's like climbing this hill that you'll just never get to the top of because it's near impossible. Um, so yes, I'm just like, yeah, nodding because I'm like, <laughs> understand like everything that you're, um, saying right now. And now that you're, um, in your med studies, mm-hmm. um, what are your feelings when it comes to, um, race and how does that play in the medical field? And you can talk about it from whatever aspect, whether it's the pathways or, um, you know, how your day-to-day life is, um, what you see, just, yeah, anything that you kind of want to touch upon in that space. Yeah, so I think the thing, a huge takeaway that I took from my undergrad was that health is political. So as much as we can learn medicine at the textbook level, so much of the way that we can deliver care is actually to do with politics. And I would say race comes into that as well. Um, Race being a social construct naturally ties into politics. And so much of it is to do, as we've seen recently, the attitudes of the political leaders towards, um, you know, race. So 
as a medical student, I guess stepping in, having had this, having been lucky enough to have this public health and holder Maori background, um, to be learning kind of the typical textbook medicine, but also being able to apply that lens of how is this actually translating for the people. Um, and so I think race actually comes into it at almost every level because, and we've even been exploring it more in class and I've been quite impressed with some of the conversations that have come up in like amongst my peers that haven't had the same background because I don't know if I'd be able to participate in the conversations like they do having not had experience in it for the last couple of years through my degree. Um, so that's actually been really cool. But um, even things like in clinical skills, we'll be learning to identify um, certain signs and symptoms in patients, but all of the pictures are on fair skin. So like, I actually don't know how to identify things like petechiae or bruising in people that have darker skin color because it's just not something that's been shown to us. And yeah, so I think just really looking at the way that medicine is taught, there's a lot that can be done to improve um, kind of our experience with different people belonging to different ethnic groups before leaving to work in our specialties. Um, so that's definitely an area that is being worked on, but definitely has a bit of a way to go from my point of view. Um, and yeah, I actually would quite like to talk about the alternative pathways because I think that there's that's a huge part of medicine that I think really needs some working on is um, in HealthSci, they don't really explain why the pathways are there. So for those that don't know this already, if you're entering a professional program um, in Otago, and this actually applies to a lot of different unis as well, but I'll just use medicine as an example. Um, there are grade thresholds that you have to reach and it's normally academically very competitive. Um, but due to the intense and sustained inequities that have been experienced by some groups in health um, and the mortality or morbidity that's been associated with that. The university has, impl has applied affirmative action pathways, which affirmative action is designed to ameliorate um, inequities. So it's different. It works on the basis of equity. So if we unpack that a little bit more, equality is kind of giving the same thing to everyone so everyone can get an extra ten dollars whereas equity is saying the rich people don't need an extra ten dollars but the poor people do we'll give them 50 and we don't need to give the rich people any more money and the whole point of that is to elevate it's not to take away from the rich people it's actually to elevate those that aren't rich up to the level of the rich people so they can all experience the same quality of life but none of them are being taken away from and I think that that concept is quite simple, but it's not communicated very well slash at all in health science, which means that as a result, students that are on these pathways um, are often criticised by their peers for getting, quote unquote, an easier path into medicine. Um, but I think what's not said when the pathways are brought up in health science is the context of why those pathways exist. So the five pathways that we have under the Maritime Society policy is Māori, Pacific, low socioeconomic, rural and refugee. And that's because these five groups have been repeatedly identified as having poorer health outcomes um, as a result of the system not being responsive to their needs. And so 
an upstream way to deal with that is to make sure that our doctors are competent in dealing with those populations and who better to deal with those populations than those who actually belong to it, right? Because they have the lived experience and we know that lived experience is like the gold standard for delivering care. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of when I think of race and medicine, I do think that there's a lot that can be done around the education of the pathways because they are a really good thing. And it is going to help diversify our workforce and be responsive to the needs of those that aren't majority belonging. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot more that could be done in making sure that the conversations are happening so that everyone is on the same page and you don't get discrimination of those students that do fall on those pathways. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of um, misunderstanding. Eh? I was like a health high student years and years ago now, um, but I just remember the really sick things that people would say you know it's a sense of you didn't work hard to be here you're just here because you know you came in through those pathways which are easier blah blah, blah. the rest of us had to work hard to get to where we are which talking about um stuff like this like access to um opportunities and um I think now that there's a growing awareness around equity rather than equality mm. so give opportunities to those from marginalized communities there's there's a growing attitude um that i see like in person and also online from a, you know a certain portion of the majority <laughs> how it's not fair and things have been you know taken away from them and i think it's so interesting that when we uplift marginalized voices, there will be some people out there who are like, this directly affects me. There are things that be uh, that are being taken away from me when, you know, people from marginalized communities have had to make their own opportunities for themselves or make a plan B all the way to the letter plan X because yeah. like life has just not been easy in terms of access to opportunities and access to resources and mentorship and all these sorts of things. And um, do you happen to know um, Sonia, oh, Sonia Renee Taylor? She has, um, she's a queen. And <laughs> we love that. <laughs> and she has this um, movement called My Body Is Not an Apology. And she's like very into the body positive. Oh, yes, I, ha- I have heard of that. Yeah. Yes, but she's also um, very active in talking about the race space. And the way that she spoke about this attitude, I was like, oh, that's so true. So for those who are in the majority who feel like things are being taken away from them, their their self-worth or their identity is so rooted in their privilege. Mm -hmm. When that is being shaken, then their sense of self is also shaken as well. And I'm like, oh like when she said that I was like my mind my <laughs> I was like oh gosh that actually makes sense I think for those who come from a marginalized background like we know that the system is against us but we are so rooted in our hard work and trying to make it work for us mm. that I know I feel like we don't put it in, in as much into system but if life is you know, you haven't had those barriers. Um, you haven't really had the chance to um, reflect on where you root yourself and your belonging and identity because life isn't as much of a crisis. So you're not going to have that identity crisis. But, you know, when those opportunities are now being, um, as they should be, given to those from marginalised communities, that must be such a crisis. Yeah. 
like they, oh no sorry you, you finish <laughs> they would have that would have never ever happened and yeah. so putting the blame or assigning the blame to those who are taking away that that self-worth those opportunities you know it's easy to point fingers yeah definitely I was just going to say like to kind of speak to how people respond to affirmative action it's kind of sad as well because as much as a big part of the issue is that people aren't accepting affirmative action it's also that we don't have enough affirmative action so half of the problem is that the affirmative action that's there is um hated on by people that aren't getting it because they don't understand and they're not educated on why it's there and then the other half of the issue is actually that the affirmative action that is in place still we still need to be more responsive like there's more affirmative action policies that we can and should be putting out there and even to revisit um a comment I caught myself saying kind of towards the beginning of this podcast when I said I came from a school that wasn't very diverse and I came to uni it was more diverse and you know everyone can go to uni even that's not true because while we do have scholarships that aim to get people to uni, if your live, if the livelihood of your whānau or your family is reliant on you working immediately, it's still not an option for you to come to university. So when we're talking about affirmative action, it's not just applying it so that people of certain brackets can get to university. It's thinking wider, like how can we actually apply affirmative action in a way that targets the most, most needy. And I think that's a challenge that is um, ongoing and it's going to be here for a long time. But I think that that's where kind of the direction of affirmative action is taking next is not just, you know, addressing for the people that don't understand, hey, it'd be good for you guys to reflect on this. It's actually revising our affirmative action policies and being like, what can we actually do to push it even further? Because until the least deprived are on equal, we still won't have achieved equity. Mm, absolutely like it will take so much more work to properly close the gap and Mm. at different points in people's process of learning like it's not just entering the program it's you know sustaining their learning and after you know after graduation as well so Mm. I agree with you and I think that's why what you were saying before about um you having your like public health um background and applying that lens of race to what you're studying now and how you know a lot of there are some people in your class who probably don't have that opportunity why it's so important everyone has that education and that awareness to be able to apply that lens because everyone's going to be doing all sorts of things in life and no matter where you are no matter where you're working if you can apply that lens of race to your mahi then overall from different areas of society will be able to hopefully close that gap Mm. Um, and I think it's really important for youth because eventually we will be the ones who will be making the policies and we'll be the ones who will be deciding where funding goes and if there's a whole generation of people who apply that lens of race I think you know this is this might be me being naively optimistic but I I think that will make um, our society more equitable Um, absolutely I totally agree and so that's why I think it's really cool that you have deconstruct because that is one of the ways that people can learn um, or have an opportunity to get that lens of race because it's so true. If you're like not actively in that space, you're not going to be learning about that kind of stuff. Like sometimes when I think about this podcast, I think what if I'm just preaching to the converted already? 
<laughs> yeah, I totally, yeah, I totally feel that as well. And actually a big part of the reason why I made deconstruct as well that I forgot to mention before was actually holding myself accountable in this space because as much as belonging to a minority automatically includes me in this space, like in my daily life, to be actively thinking about the concepts and kind of taking it further requires active effort. And I think that's another thing that people don't realize is like as much as engaging on social media posts passively is a really great starting point. You do still need to take kind of that active step outside of just reading other people and just reflecting on how you view things in your life or your attitudes or even the output of your attitudes and how that affects other people. And I noticed that when I left my degree, I entered med school and these conversations just don't happen. Like if it's not brought to the table by a student, it's generally missed out in discussion. Like there's no actual space in the curriculum a lot of the time to have these discussions, which was another big driver for me personally to run Deconstruct because I was now finding myself in a position where if I didn't make that effort, I could go quite a long time not having these discussions and I didn't want that to happen. So, yeah. Oh, I love how you brought that up because that's one of my, not frustrations, but one of the things that I see lacking when we talk about race and racism. I think a lot of people are like very quick to share the unfortunate news of an event really quickly, especially on social media, but people are very slow to do the real work that comes afterwards, which is taking the time to reflect on your own experiences and taking the time to realize, okay, there's this big ugly r word but what does that actually mean to me what does that look like in my life how does it show up in my life and um you know what are the forms of it because it's not just like the violent forms that people tend to um talk about the most when it comes to social media so I love how you've brought that up when you're you know, one of the motivations for Deconstruct was accountability for yourself and providing yourself the um, the chance to reflect and learn. Because, yeah, even if you are a migrant person, um, you know, there's stuff that everyone has to learn in this space. Um, like, it, and it is uncomfortable. Like, there are some things that I'm like, oh, I actually cannot believe that I said that or I did that. But Mm -hmm. you can't stew in those feelings for too long you owe it to yourself and to society just push through and be like okay well and focus on and reframe it as you know now I know better what can I do the next time and how can I um also provide the opportunity for others um ah so good um when you talk about all sorts of different um things on deconstruct and one of the things that I love how you um deconstruct or break down is tokenism and so I was wondering if you would be able to speak a little bit more about that yeah absolutely so um tokenism is actually quite a simple concept but I think it's people find it difficult to get their head around because it's tied really closely to fragility which is something that we see quite often with people and it's just a natural thing that does happen is when you're first stepping into this space and you are unsure you're more sensitive to any kind of criticism in this space and the trouble with that and why like what I said before about woke elitism and why I thought that that was such a bad thing was in those times of sensitivity that's when people will leave the space and not come back and we can't really afford people to be doing that and so 
yeah, fragility is something that's really important to keep in mind when addressing things like tokenism, which I think is why it's not talked about enough. But I think it's really important that we do because it's an area that causes a lot of well-meaning harm. And yeah, I think a lot of the discussions that we had around tokenism in my undergrad were focused on the idea that while intention is really important, we still need to be conscious of the outcome. So a lot of well-meaning people when they're first stepping into this space will be tokenistic. And what that means is looking at cultures or looking at ways they can engage in culture and kind of, if you imagine writing a list of things that you needed to do to feel like you'd been culturally sensitive or culturally safe and kind of just went through and ticked all of them off, that's what tokenism is. So um, some examples that I definitely see quite a lot would be um, you know, university emails always sign off with a fakatoki and namahi and all of, you know, all these Māori phrases, but what they're actually saying in the words in the body of the text of the email is not supportive of Māori interests. And I think that that's quite a clear and easily recognisable form of tokenism where it actually looks good to, you know, people that see it at face value and they're like, yeah, you know, inclusive Māori, I see some tereo in there, like I see a Māori proverb. But and if you actually look further, the intention of that wasn't necessarily to be inclusive of Māori. It was actually just to give kind of the image that you're being inclusive of Māori because as much as being culturally safe and sensitive is kind of starting to pick up, you know, it's starting to pick up speed and lots of people are realising, hey, it's actually something that's really important and not just for Māori, for all minority populations to be inclusive and sensitive of other people's cultures. On the flip side of that, you've got some people that, are quite savvy and business-minded and they're thinking, well, shit, like I need to get onto this bandwagon as well. Um, Otherwise it's going to make me look bad if I don't pretend to at least try to be engaging in this space. And that's where the roots of tokenism lie, I think, is when people are engaging in a culture but for some form of self-benefit. And so it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, doing something that you think, and even if the output for the community is great, it's still wrong on principle because the intention of it is self-preserving. And I think that's a really difficult concept for people to think about because when you start entering token, like conversations of tokenism, it's really easy to then kind of question yourself when you're unsure in this space and be like, oh shoot, am I being tokenistic? And navigating that and finding the sureness in yourself of knowing when you're actually genuinely engaging and when there might be some ulterior motive is the difference between being able to kind of deconstruct tokenism within yourself, let alone other people and actually meaningfully engaging, if that makes sense. Mm, That makes sense. I think, yeah, there are a lot of things that we kind of rush to do either because yeah, there will be some self-interest or we're just conforming to what we think is going to be beneficial for everyone involved. But again, it's a lot of hard work to really respect and understand the community that you're wanting to engage with. And also, I think when we're talking about tokenism, just um, respecting and acknowledging there's going to be a variety of opinions. Like that community or that culture is not homogenous. And just because something that you've said or done in one setting is 
okay and respectful. It might not be the same mm. um, in another setting yeah. just because it's the same um, members of that particular community involved. Um, you have to be open to to all sorts of opinions in a, in a culture because it's not homogenous. Absolutely. Also seen as well in the tokenism space, just blank that blanket rule and applying it to everything and anywhere, but that's definitely not the case. Yeah. And I think like the other real harm of tokenism as well is especially when it is blanket rules, like you're saying, then it kind of changes people's perception of the richness of the culture. You know, it becomes reductionist almost like the whole of Māori culture is saying kyoto. You know, where actually, if you know when to say it and why you're saying it, you know, say the karakia, but know why you're saying the karakia and say it appropriately and pronounce it the best that you can. You know, you don't need only Māori saying karakia as long as we understand exactly why it's being said. And I think tokenism is a real barrier to people actually meaningfully engaging with cultures, which is, yeah, a real big setback, in my opinion, um, for achieving equity because it's I kind of view it as like a, like a band-aid kind of fix like it looks better but it's still kind of broken underneath but we're going for you know the full healing not to make like a medical reference but (laughs) (laughs) we don't want no (laughs) band-aids oh yeah we need to yeah rip that off and yeah get to the real healing Mm. and um another way that uh, another form of tokenism that I see quite often as well is um when we want to add diversity and bring different voices to the table. Yeah. Are asked to the table, what they do is um, us sharing trauma, literally yeah. stories. This is so what? true. Literally for what? Just so you could tick the, the box saying, oh, we had this voice here at the table. Oh, my God. Yeah. When people like know that they need to have that voice at the table, so they're like, I'll just ask any random Māori or any random Pacific or any random Asian, which I will reiterate, like Asia's a continent. Like there's so many different diverse experiences within all cultures and all labelling of different cultural groups. And to just pick a random person and be like, yep, they can speak on behalf of their entire nation. Or in the case of Asians, continents. <laughs> It's like, yeah, it definitely takes away from the individual experience, which I think is, yeah, not acceptable by any means. There will be people um, tuning in and they will be asking the question next, which is, well, how do you genuinely invite voices to the table in a way where it's not tokenistic? Mm. The only answer to that is consultation, but meaningful consultation. So, when we and we used to cover this quite a lot in public health research, but I think as a concept, it applies to almost any kind of engagement in this space. Is if you're engaging with a community that's not your own, by definition, you don't understand all of the ins and outs of that community. And the only way that you can get those answers is to meaningfully engage with the community. So, in the context of research, we would often discuss how that doesn't mean discussing the prospects of the project at the beginning and then never asking them again. It's actually going back time and time again throughout and being willing to revise your project guidelines and protocols alongside the interests of the community that you're researching um, and being willing to adapt to their needs. 
And that's where the aspect of cultural humility comes in. And that's where we achieve cultural safety is if you've got the humility of actually keeping this culture and keeping this community safe is more important to me than how fast my research progresses or how much I can get out in this amount of time or any other kind of like self-involved interest. That's when you actually see magic happening is when you're actually meaningfully connecting with the communities in a way that shows that you're really wanting to be there for the right reasons. I think that's how you avoid tokenism. And even though I talked about it in a research concept just then, anytime you engage with a community that's not your own, keep on going back and asking because it's so much better to ask and find out you're wrong before you do it and fix it with their help or with their guidance and expertise than to take something they've said at the beginning, run to the hills and then be like, shit, I've really screwed over this community because the other thing that we learned in the research space, but I also think applies to even what I said about being a migrant or just, you know, any kind of discussion in this area is if you're entering a space that's not your own, don't leave it worse than before you got there. And I think that's where tokenism really splits away from meaningful consultation is while tokenism is intending, often well-intended, if you aren't following through meaningfully, you can create quite significant harm and leave communities worse than when you engaged in the first place because you're contributing to the idea that it's the majority that gets to set the direction for all community change. And that's like a huge idea that I think needs to be constructing in all colonial countries, but especially, you know, where Indigenous kind of development is concerned, um, taking the power away or taking away the idea that it's majority power over all else and actually being like, no, it's actually a partnership. Um, that's kind of where we're going to start being able to make meaningful change. Mm. Especially sometimes even if that partnership looks like, okay, we've actually recognising that, hey, there's a lot to learn here. Mm. Let's take a step back. Absolutely. And before we, you know, before we just go charging in. Mm. Oh, I love that so much. And another um, layer that I'd like to add to that as well is keeping people safe and injecting humanity into it. I think when, you know, voices are asked to come onto the table, there's a lack of humanity in the sense that even a how you ask like Mm. I think it's good to be straight up and say hey we recognize that there is um, a lack of diversity and we would love you know your voice to be a part of this wider conversation Mm. but if you're asking it in a way where it's like and then we also expect you to share your lived experiences and all these sorts of things it just seems to come with these expectations it's like well those expectations are never put on anyone else but because you're asking me to come to the table like please treat me like a human and I I will decide if I want to share my story or not or um and like recognizing the humanity and the sense that I am just you know individual person not a hundred percent um genuinely representing a whole entire community because there's no way one person would ever be able to capture that um but yeah there just seems to be sometimes a lack of humanity and also a lack of concern for um safety as well definitely Um, 
I totally agree. Yeah. And I think speaking to that as well with what we're just saying about the majority kind of setting the direction and that being a colonial process that we very much still need to change. Um, Even in the situation of having voices at the table, giving the power to the majority of choosing who sits at the table rather than asking the communities, hey, who would you like to represent your community on our board is very different to hmm, who's convenient for me to choose that's likely to agree with what we're saying. Because like we've said, not all people belonging to a community are the same and not all people belonging to a community are going to have the community's interests at heart. And that's just fact because we can't have every single person belonging to one community thinking the same thing. That's outrageous. So, yeah, I I totally hear you. (laughs) Exactly. That's that. And that's our two cents on tokenism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would also love your two cents on intersectionality and Mm -hmm. what that word means to you. um, And like with deconstruct, but also just, in your lived experience, how do you see other people interact with that word and what do you wish um, people understood more about intersectionality? Absolutely. So I think where the concept of intersectionality actually comes up most frequently is probably in the areas of um, rainbow communities and also race, but I think it does extend beyond that. So intersectionality for those listening that haven't heard of it before um, kind of speaks to the idea that those that belong to multiple minority groups or underprivileged groups experience a cumulative effect of hardship. So those of us belonging to more than one minority will experience more hardship as a total effect than those belonging to fewer minorities, which actually, if you think about it, kind of makes sense. But where intersectionality occurs is that it's not just the cumulative effect, it's that sometimes there are tensions that arise very specifically as a result of certain combinations of belonging to different minorities. And that's why intersectionality as a concept I think is so important because when we are looking at affirmative action or looking at ameliorative kind of um, strategies to change inequity, we can't just say, we need to fix only race-related issues because there are people that belong to ethnic minorities that also belong to, you know, sexual and gender diverse communities that are immigrants or indigenous and, you know, they might be low income, they might be refugee. There are so many different groups that people can belong to and even intersectionality in terms of your level of privilege, how educated you are, um, your socioeconomic status, your geographic location, um, your deprivation level, all of those things come together to form your intersectional identity. And until we kind of recognise that that exists as a concept, it's going to be very difficult for us to set affirmative action that actually creates meaningful change because if we only designed it with one kind of category in mind, then we're not addressing, you know, half the people that belong to that community that also belong to other communities And I think you and I both have probably had quite um, personal experiences with that because you and I both belong to um, religious or ethnic or, you know, cultural minorities here among other groups that we belong to, which, you know, we're very proud to be part of. But as, you know, a responsibility that comes with that is, well, not a responsibility, but an experience that comes with that is that cumulative effect of, um, yeah, discrimination, for lack of a better word. Yeah. What are your thoughts? (laughs) 
I, yeah, I understand you with that cumulative effect. And I didn't actually understand that what the cumulative, oh, cumulative, little, sorry, guys. I'm like, <laughs> Um, I actually didn't understand that until I started looking at feminism mm. because I never used to be a feminist. I was like, this is this, nothing about this. <laughs> like it literally makes no sense. And yeah. it wasn't until I stumbled across the word intersectionality mm. that I realized, oh, actually this does, mm. and this is relevant to me, but just the way it previously pre- been presented, it didn't take into consideration that there are different experiences of being female. So mm. I guess yes, gals, and it sucks sometimes being a gal. Mm. Um, but you know there are white females who definitely have more privilege, um, and you can back it's backed up by research, folks. Yes. So don't come at me. Um, <laughs> you know have more privilege than um you know african-american females for example or in multi pacifica um women so and i just and i thought feminism was coming from that white female perspective or that lens and i was like well i don't see myself in any of them in any of this like yes i'm a girl but actually my race also influences my experience as a female and vice versa because you don't live life in isolation you live life from multiple um identities all at the same time um so I didn't understand that cumulative effect until I understood um intersectionalist feminism I was like okay it all makes sense now and then applying that intersectionality to other spaces, not just feminism, but race and yeah. our sexuality. And I'm like, yes. Actually, that's so true because I don't know if you've heard of this book, but Women Don't Owe You Pretty. It's like oh, Florence. It's trending. It's been trending for a while now, but I picked it up because, you know, I was like, this is, you know, it's a bit of girl power. That could be quite a good read. <laughs> but it was really interesting because when I was reading it, I actually found that even though the messages were definitely things that I reflected on myself, it didn't really fit my personal context because it was written from a very majority white perspective and it just didn't fit like you experienced with my ideas, what it means to be a woman for starters, but also just my feminist ideals in relation to my culture and my other identities within other minorities. Um, Yeah, just interesting that you brought up the um the feminism thing because it's something that I was thinking about very recently actually and another thing as well is in the feminism space if you belong to like it's well established that being part like identifying as a woman is considered um being part of a disadvantaged group in relation to men but I think our ideas of women like a lot of the a lot of the affirmative action or a lot of um, kind of strategies to ameliorate that are targeted only at white cis women, which is leaving behind our trans communities. And I think that's a conversation that's been coming up a lot more frequently. And one I think needs to be brought to the forefront is that we can't just, like you said, target only certain people belonging to certain like very niche groups within minorities. You have to actually be willing to change it for everyone. Yeah. Exactly, and being open to different experiences because, yeah, we all are so complex humans and 
it's not just our identities, but like, you know, our environment and our education, all these sorts of things that influence how we see the world and the struggles that we have and the privilege that we have. So absolutely. It is, yeah, really interesting. Like if I personally reflect within the Somali community, there's a wide array of experiences and different privileges that um we have like it's quite common for um Somali girls to have that role of like looking after the house um mm. and it's it happens at quite a young age like there were a lot of girls like when I was at high school and stuff who it would be very normal to make sure they'd have to get home quickly so there was um dinner cooked in time for everyone else to eat but I never ever had to worry about that because my mum was so concerned about um how that would impact our education Mm. I feel like that has given me the opportunity to be more I don't know my feminism ideals probably align more on the western Mm. western in that sense um but then I also because my parents are so concerned about me doing well at school I didn't have the opportunity to learn my mother tongue but there it's quite common actually for um Somali migrant kids to still know their language Mm. and so I'm kind of the odd sheep Mm. and that privilege that I wish I had I mean trying to learn now but it's a lot harder learning a language when you're a child so intersectionality is so so important to Mm. to be aware of and just understanding that we're all different even if we come under you know the same categories and just recognizing that there are multiple um accesses that we experience life in not just the one so that's really cool um I wish I had more time with you (laughs) um but as we um draw closer to the end of the episode I would love to just get your hot tips on seeing racism so um it can either be when you see it or when it happens to you or you can talk to both um yeah hot tips (laughs) hot tips (laughs) Um, for anti-racist behavior um yeah racism is something that firstly people are scared of um talking about and secondly when they do kind of come to terms with the fact that it is around us it's not actually just the issue of recognizing it it's kind of navigating that freeze moment when you realize it's happening you're like oh shit what do I do now because as much as we can all sit here like read the Instagram posts whatever and say to ourselves yeah, I definitely stand up against my best friend if they were being racist or I'd stand up against my mum, dad, brother, sister, whatever. The truth is the closer that you are to them, it is harder. And um, like I said before about fragility, it is actually largely to do with navigating that space um, with the recognition that, you know, for a lot of people, if they're called out too hard for racism, they're not going to engage in the space again because they'll just write you off as being, you know, oh, that person that called me racist. So mm. I think from from my time in this space, um, and I tried to articulate a few of these tips like in a post a while back, but I think a really, really valuable technique is to actually slow down the conversation. So if you're in a situation where um, something has been said, most of the time, A, the person that said it is just trying to get a laugh, like they're not actually trying to be racist but it's just a really cheap shot and the outcome is still harmful 
So with that in mind, slowing down the conversation and keeping it not personally directed at them. So if you're in a group situation, I think it's fine to address it at the time if it's a small group. Um, If it's a massive group with the impact of fragility in mind, I would probably say it's more appropriate to talk to them afterwards, but again, like at everyone's discretion. And if you slow down the conversation enough to just make them think, and it doesn't need to even be anything huge, it's just in that small gap between them saying, you know, a racist or stereotypical joke about a culture or a person, and that small gap between them saying it and everyone kind of doing that awkward, like, haha, laugh thing, (laughs) that's when you can kind of jump in and be like, either play dumb and be like, I don't get the joke, like ask them to explain the joke because that forces them to actually actively reflect on the intentions of why they said it. And honestly, most of the time it will be more to do with like, I just want to make people laugh, but regardless, it's forcing them to think about, you know, words are harmful and it's appropriate that they at that time or shortly after reflect on exactly why they said it and what would prevent them from saying a similar thing again. And Yeah, it doesn't need to be a fat call out like, whoa, that was so racist because, like I said, that actually is a way that people use as an excuse to never engage in the space again. But if you kind of just go, oh, what did you mean by that? And get them to explain the joke. It's kind of funny, but also like it does make them them reflect. So, yeah, I think slowing down the conversation is probably my my biggest hot tip. (laughs) Um, What are your hot tips? I really like that actually because yeah, that kind of links up to what my hot tip is and that's, I feel like a lot of people feel uncomfortable because they feel like they're rocking the boat and it's not worth it. But mm. in reality, you shouldn't feel uncomfortable. You weren't the one who did the thing or said the thing. So finding ways to shift that uncomfortable feeling to the person who said it. And that sounds horrible and cruel and mean, but I think when people feel like that, that's when they have the awareness of, oh, snap, that wasn't okay. Um, So that's why I like the tip of slowing down the conversation because that provides opportunity to shift that uncomfortable feeling because now that person's going to be in that uncomfortable position of, oh, this joke was funny because, and (laughs) really uncomfortable explaining why they, thought that joke was really funny um so if you can find opportunities to kind of shift that uncomfortable feeling from yourself to the other person definitely and I think as well like there is a very clear distinction when you're saying it and also how it's received between you are racist and what was said was racist and I think like putting the blame quote unquote away from the person and actually on the statement is a way less confronting way of addressing to them hey like what you said wasn't like what was said actually wasn't okay rather than coming straight at them being like you're so racist or like what you said was racist if you keep it focused on the statement being like what was said was you know like could be perceived as racist and then the other hot tip as well that I just thought of was and this works for everything not just this space is I feel statements because people actually can't argue against how you feel so if you're in a position and this kind of speaks more to your second part of the question about when it's happening to you, it can actually be really confronting when you're faced with covert racism because, I mean, sorry, overt racism, because you're kind of just like, Oh shit, this is not happening. Like you just don't assume that it's happening and you often don't really reflect on what's happened until after. Um, 
but when you do kind of reach that reflection it's totally appropriate and okay to go up to the person and instead of again being like you're racist say I felt really uncomfortable when you said this because it applies to me and it made me feel like this and they can't sit there and be like like the most that they'll be able to say is probably I didn't mean it that way but again then you can go back to the but I still felt that way and I think most people in my position would feel that way you know I think just drawing their attention to the actual impact that a statement has is a really powerful and non-confrontational way of, again, like we said, the number one tip, slowing it down and getting people to self-reflect. I like that a lot because it really draws the connection between intention and outcome. Mm, I mean, it's okay. While I'm saying this, I take it with a pinch of salt because I think a lot of people are scared to get involved in this space because they're scared of making a mistake mm-hmm. and mistakes will happen. Um, but it's also really important to be mindful of regardless of what your intention was, just to link it back to how that person felt. Because, mm-hmm. yes, intention is important, but how that person felt is also really important as well. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes we we forget about that Um so I really like that hot tip. <laughs> um, I would just like to thank you so much for being on the show. Like, honestly, so many gems. I'm so excited for people to listen to this. <laughs> You're such, it's such an honor to be here. Thanks. Everything you said is such a good learning. So oh, I'm excited to release this episode into the world. Um, uh-huh. Thank you so much for being on to the show. And yeah, girl, keep going on with Deconstruct. You are amazing. <laughs> Love you so much. Thank you for having me on. Oh, love you too. See, see you next time. Yes. Bye. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of Headscarfs and Good Yarns. To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at headscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.